Hello and welcome to the EMJ podcast with me, your host, Dr. Jonathan Sakia. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Angela George, who specializes in the treatment of gynecological cancers with a focus on the use of genomic information in treatment. Angela completed her medical education at the University of Otago Medical School in New Zealand and trained as a medical oncologist. She then undertook additional training in oncogenetics at the University of London Institute for Cancer Research here in the UK, where she was awarded the Chairman's Prize for her thesis on ovarian cancer genetics. She is now Clinical Director of Genomics and Consultant Medical Oncologists at Britain's internationally known Royal Marsden Hospital. She's involved in multiple national and international groups, including the National Cancer Research Institute Gynecological Cancers Group, the Precision Medicine Working Group for the European Society of Medical Oncology, and the British Society of Genetic Medicine. She's the Cancer Clinical Lead for the North Thames Genomic Medicine Service and co-chairs the Molecular Tumor Board. More of that later. She was recently appointed to the Clinical Advisory Group for the National Health Service England Genomics Unit, sits on the NHS England Genomics Clinical Reference Group, and is on the UK Cancer Genetics Group Steering Committee. She's also a very productive scientific author, contributing multiple peer-reviewed publications and book chapters, covering a variety of clinical and translational research. And if I was not already in awe, I discovered that Angela is a very keen chocolatier, experimenting with flavors and truffles. Of course, chocolate is that most essential of the essential food groups. Dr. Angela George, it's a real pleasure to have you with us today. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me today. And, and I, I wish we were uh, in person and I could have insisted you brought along some, uh, some chockies. So what inspired you to specialise in oncology and, and, and oncogenetics? Well, I always wanted to be an oncologist um, from, a, from a very early age. I was quite specific and I sort of was very focused all the way through medical school and my sort of early training on getting to oncology, um, partly because I think there are just so many facets to, to cancer in terms of the biology and the treatments and such a, a huge unmet need. And so I always sort of was drawn to oncology as a specialty. And then as I started in oncology and did my training and sort of started as a consultant, I was increasingly interested in how so many patients with the same tumor type had such different outcomes and different responses to treatment. And that really led to my interest in genomics. And then following on from that, the realization that so many of the cancers that I was seeing and treating were potentially preventable because they were the result of inherited genetic conditions and sort of came to the realization that if we could only have a better understanding of the genomics and the reasons as to why people were getting cancer, there was a lot that could be prevented. Okay, well, that, that's a, a perfect segue. Your area of interest is germline and somatic mutations in, in, in cancer and their, and their use in determining personalized management in cancer treatment. Tell us more about this. Well, I think, you know, for a long time, when, when we're choosing treatment for patients, we've looked at patient-directed factors. So sort of the age of the patient, their general wellness, other medical conditions that they have. But what we didn't do for a long time is actually focus on what drives the cancer and what makes up the cancer 
and what is causing that cancer to grow and divide and potentially spread. And as we've become more and more aware of the, the subtle molecular differences in the cancers, we've become much better at selecting the treatments that patients are, are more likely to respond to. And I think, you know, lung cancer is, is a brilliant example of this because when I did my training and when I started as, as an oncologist, we basically treated everyone with lung cancer with the same types of chemotherapies and, and chemotherapy didn't really extend people's life, but it helped with some of their symptoms. And then as we've become aware of all of the different drivers of lung cancer, we now have a range of molecular tests that we do when someone is diagnosed, which determines the treatment that they receive. And for most of these patients, they receive treatments that are targeted to the specific molecular change that is driving their cancer. And we have really, really good outcomes. And suddenly we're seeing people who were diagnosed with very advanced lung cancer who are living sort of 10, 12, and more years with sort of complete remission, which is something that we just could have never dreamed of sort of 10 or 15 years ago. Yeah, it's, um, I, I guess, the growth of personalized medicine, uh, viewing that uh, we're, we're not all the same. It, uh, it's very encouraging. My next question is inspired by something I've seen a couple of times recently, where someone's got a cancer, one person has cancer in a family, there are implications for other family members, right? And as, as clinical director of genomics, you oversee the Center for Molecular Pathology and undertake testing for inherited cancer syndromes. It's a bit of a loaded question, really, because I was going to just say how widely appreciated are the inherited syndromes, Lynch and so on. And again, this is the loaded part. Do we need to do more to raise awareness among doctors and the public? I personally think the answer is an overwhelming yes, but you know a damn sight more about this than I do. Well, I would wholeheartedly agree with you. I think there is still many, many clinicians out there who are not aware of some of the links with certain cancers and inherited syndromes. And Lynch is a, is a fantastic example. You know, Lynch syndrome is caused by an inherited alteration in one of four genes. And people who have Lynch syndrome have particularly high risks of colorectal and endometrial or womb cancer, but also potentially smaller risks of a number of other cancers depending on the gene. And it's currently estimated that there are sort of over 250,000 adults in the UK who carry a Lynch syndrome mutation and aren't aware of it. And for a long, long time, it's been very hit and miss as to who has even been tested or considered for Lynch gene uh, testing. And we're trying to get better at it. You know, for the last sort of five years, we've been recommending that all patients with colorectal cancer have testing undertaken on their tumor, which can help identify those who may have an inherited gene syndrome. And a couple of years ago, we got the same recommendation for endometrial cancer um, so that we could try and find these people who weren't being recognized. But I think it's fair to say that, unfortunately, the, the uptake of that routine tumor testing has still been quite patchy in a number of places. And there are still many, many people who carry these gene alterations who don't know about it and who aren't referred for testing because their clinicians just aren't aware of those links. I'd love to see some kind of national campaign in competency testing amongst clinicians. We need to do a better job you know, educating young and older doctors about this. So you also chair the Molecular Tumor Board. For the benefit of listeners who may not know about tumor boards in general. I mean, most of our listeners are clinicians, but many are not. 
Talk about tumor boards in general and the, the function and, and the history of them, if you will, and how they came about, and then expand into what a molecular tumor board is. So tumor boards in general are usually multidisciplinary meetings where you have all of the people from different disciplines who are involved in treating a patient. And for a normal sort of tumor board, that would include surgeons or medical oncologists, clinical oncologists, clinical nurse specialists, pathologists, radiologists, who would all sort of discuss the specifics of that patient's case and decide the most appropriate treatment plan for an individual going forward. And that's basically a very similar thing to what we do with the molecular tumor board, except in a molecular tumor board rather than discussing the sort of the grade of the tumor and the stage of the tumor and whether the patient needs radiotherapy or chemotherapy or, or what type of surgery. Instead, we're looking at the molecular makeup of the tumor from one of a number of different types of tests. And the people around the table are, again, the clinician who's looking after the patient, but also clinical geneticists to expand on the inherited component, the clinical scientists who are looking at these variants and, and telling us whether they're real or, or how, whether they're a definite cancer-causing mutation or whether it's just a, a something that's been found incidentally. We have pathologists and basically we're trying to look at the molecular subtype of tumors and see which alterations are present in the tumor and make a decision about which one is actually driving the tumor's behavior, which one is causing it to grow and to spread. And basically what we're trying to identify is the switch that's turned the tumor on with the aim of being able to turn that switch off. Because if you look at the molecular makeup of a tumor, all tumors will have hundreds or even th hundreds of thousands of different mutations that are present. And some of those will be targetable and some of those won't. And some of those will be the mutations that are causing the cancer to behave in a certain way. And we call those the driver mutations. And then others will be mutations that have just occurred in the tumor as it's grown and developed and are not changing its behavior. And one of the things about a molecular tumor board is trying to decide which is the driver mutation for the tumor and which is the one you need to target. Because if you try and give a drug that targets a mutation that isn't changing the behavior of the tumor, you won't get any benefit. So increasingly, what we're looking at is really complex molecular testing that patients have had undertaken with testing for sort of 400 or 500 or 600 genes to see which mutations are present in the tumor, which ones we think are cancer-causing, which ones are targetable, and which ones are really going to make a difference to the patient. I uh, Again, I think this is something that screams out for broader education I guess this happens to all clinicians, uh, all doctors. We end up being a, a, a font of knowledge for our friends. And my first response is, I'm, I'm not as clever as you think I am. I'm really not. And, I, you know, I just had one the other day. A friend said they have a friend who has a disseminated uh, a metastasized breast cancer. And what's the treatment? You know, educating people that you need to go somewhere where this degree of, of investigation can be carried out to ascertain the genetic makeup of the tumor so you can give the patient the best chance. So, again, more education. I think it's going to be a, a recurring theme. So you recently published uh, an article on, uh, on implementing rapid rapid, robust, cost-effective, patient-centered, routine genetic testing in patients with ovarian cancer. Talk to us about the main findings of this research on what is a pretty wretched malignancy. Yeah, so this was our, our mainstreaming program. And basically, it was very clear to me when I 
sort of started doing more in genetics and uh, with my sort of particular interest in ovarian cancer, that there are many, many patients who have an inherited gene alteration to have caused their ovarian cancer. We know that depending on the subtype, up to 20% of ovarian cancer is inherited. And that means that if you can find in advance those people who have the inherited gene alteration, you can potentially prevent them from going on to develop the cancer in the first place. And as an oncologist, it was particularly frustrating seeing patients who had had, for example, a previous breast cancer or sometimes two previous breast cancers when nobody had thought about genetic testing at that point in time. And then they turned up with what was a very much a life-limiting ovarian cancer where we could manage it and keep it under control for a few years, but, but they were ultimately going to die from this. And we looked in a bit more detail and we looked around at also some of the other cancer centers who were thinking similar things. And we identified that only around 10% of the patients who at that point in time would be eligible for genetic testing were being referred for genetic testing here. And the MD Anderson, which is obviously a very big um, internationally renowned cancer center in the US, looked at the same time and they found 6% of their patients uh, who were eligible were being referred for testing with ovarian cancer. So it was a huge unmet need. And the difficulty is that the process to get genetic testing at the time was quite laborious. You needed a, a clinician in the ovarian cancer clinic to realize that this patient needed testing and to actually write a referral. And of course, the time at which people were asking about family history and things like that was usually when the person was first diagnosed and there were lots of other things going on in the background. And there's always that idea that you'll come back to it in future and, and most people forgot to do that and then if the person was referred then they had to wait often many months for an appointment the appointments could be on a day when they were not feeling well from side effects of chemotherapy or they were in hospital so then you had people not turning up and then if you did do testing it took a long time to get the results back and so there were loads of points at which people didn't then get testing so we thought wouldn't it be better if we said well, look, we'll take all the patients who would be eligible for testing and we'll train the oncologists to do the testing in clinic because increasingly we were aware that these kind of mutations had implications for treatment and that it would be helpful in terms of being able to tell people about their likely outcomes to know this information as well. And basically that's what we did. So we set up an education program and we trained the oncologists and specialist nurses to do the discussion with patients about genetic testing. We provided written information, talked to the patients, and what we found was that the patients were overwhelmingly positive about getting this testing. And then we took out all of those other time points at which patients were being missed. So we took out the need to refer to genetics. We took out the need to wait a long time for another appointment. The patients were consented and gave blood if they wanted to go ahead, you know, as soon as they wish to go ahead. And then we got the results back much faster and could use that in our patient pathway. And just not as we were starting to do this, we also started to have some of the BRCA targeted drugs coming through in trials and then now in routine use for ovarian cancer. It became vitally important as we were doing this to identify all of the patients uh, because we could suddenly change the treatment and, and offer something else. 
we moved from there. We started a breast program soon after, and then we've run it in pancreatic cancer. But what we've fundamentally done is actually changed the way that people think about doing this genetic testing and think about it more as something that is vital for not only identifying family members, um, but also being able to give these patients the, the optimal treatment going forward. As I was going through this, I was really realizing how ignorant I am about so many things. Some of your current research includes the the, the treatment and prognosis of what I believe, um, in fairness to me, is a very rare malignancy, ovarian carcinosarcoma or malignant mixed malarian tumor. I had never even heard of this. So carcinosarcoma is thankfully a, a, a rare form of ovarian cancer, although it's increasing in frequency, we're seeing more and more of it. And it's a particularly aggressive form of ovarian cancer. We get a mixture of both sarcoma features and also the, the typical um, carcinoma features that we more commonly see in, in ovarian cancer. And the difficulty is sarcomas are much less sensitive to our treatments than the carcinoma component. So these patients tend to behave more aggressively. They often have very uh, rapid relapses and they don't have such good responses to chemotherapy. But we are increasingly finding that a number of them have these useful underlying gene alterations that we can then potentially target to give these patients a better outcome. You published an article entitled Multidisciplinary Interventions in a Specialist Drug Development Unit to Improve Family History Documentation Onward Referral of Patients with Advanced Cancer to Cancer Genetic Services, which I guess I was referring to a little bit earlier. Tell us more about the importance of this and how it can help. I mean, any any sort of examples, clinical examples uh, you can provide? I, I, again, I, I hinted at one, but you're the expert. As with many things, we had identified that a lot of the patients who come to things like phase one units where they're sort of running out of, of treatment options are often younger, they have rarer cancers, and they are a group of patients who are much more likely than your average group of, of cancer patients to have inherited gene alterations. But we found that taking a, a family history where you asked about, you know, who else in the families had certain types of cancer and then appreciating the importance of the history they were taking was pretty poor and that there were lots of people who just by virtue of their age and cancer type, we should be testing for, for genetic syndromes. So one of the things that we did was, again, we did some education. We set up checklists that they team and the fellows and the nurses had to go through with every patient. We basically made it a traffic light system. If they meet one of these criteria, they should immediately be tested for, for these uh, syndromes. If they're in the orange area, then they need a referral to genetics. If they're in this area, then then it's not likely to be inherited and they, and they don't need anything. But again, with phase one, we're increasingly looking at molecularly matched drugs. So what we were finding was, for example, a young woman with um, endometrial cancer who had very chemo-resistant disease. She had metastases everywhere. She'd progressed through two lines of chemotherapy, and she came to uh, to DDU for, um, for a trial because she basically had no other options. And we were able to undertake some testing on her and identify that she actually was a carrier of a Lynch syndrome gene, which again hadn't been looked at in the past because people hadn't appreciated that there were some rarer cancers in her family that were linked with the endometrial cancer. 
And as a result of that, she was able to get onto one of the first immunotherapy studies with a drug called pembrolizumab. And within three months, she was in a complete response. And she is now seven years out and has not had any relapse of her disease. She is has been off the drug now for five years and remains in complete remission. So as a result of that, we were then also able to go on and test her family members. We identified a number of other individuals who had underlying gene alterations. Um, we were able to recommend things like colonoscopy screening. We found a very early bowel cancer in her brother who was in his early 30s at the time, he was able to have that um, resected and hasn't required any further treatment. It just is a demonstration of how finding these gene alterations in people and recognizing them can not only really change the treatment options for them, but it also gives us that preventative option for the family members. And then future family members can consider things like pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, which is a way of being able to take mutations out of the future generations uh, and, and change the story of these families and, and not have those young deaths from cancer. Wow. Do you recall how old this lady was? She was 36. Oh my goodness gracious. That's a that's a lovely story and a specialty for which we don't think of lovely stories. So what a win. That's fantastic. Um, Angela, you've written two book chapters on hereditary endometrial and ovarian cancer. Give us a sense of how common these hereditary cancers are. And going back to my theme of education, what can we do to better educate women, detect these malignancies earlier and improve the treatment paradigms? Mm -hmm. Well, if we start with ovarian cancer, I mean, around 20% of ovarian cancer is inherited. And there are different genes that are important depending on the subtype of the gene alteration. But this makes a, a massive difference. And the, the biggest problem we have with the ovarian cancer patients is that nearly half of the women with ovarian cancer who have a gene alteration have no family history or very little family history of relevant cancers. So we know that family history is rubbish for picking up those who do carry a mutation, particularly if the gene's been inherited through the male line, because the cancers that people get are female specific, so breast and, and ovarian predominantly. So if someone's inherited this mutation from their dad, there may be no family history at all. So we have to test everyone basically to find the people with the mutations. But again, it makes such a massive difference. And if I if I can possibly give you one more example of, of one of my favorite families, and this is a favorite family because I, I think I basically have met the entire family in one guise or another, and I'm pretty sure I'm on their forever Christmas card list. But the the original patient was one of my patients who had relapsed with ovarian cancer just after we started the mainstreaming program. And so we were able to offer her a genetic test. She didn't have a family history of ovarian cancer, but we confirmed that she carried a mutation in the BRCA2 gene. And as a result of that, she was able to get onto a clinical trial with uh, one of the first PARP inhibitors, Olaparib. Um, and she, again, has, has remained in complete remission uh, following that treatment. But as a result of finding that BRCA2 mutation, we were then able to test her two sisters and two brothers. And we confirmed that whilst her brothers didn't have the mutation, her two sisters both did. And with the wonders of the NHS, they had their testing at the same time. We saw them with the results at the same time. They went to see their surgeon and actually had their uh, ovaries and fallopian tubes removed prophylactically on the same day. And despite both having normal ultrasounds and tumor markers, 
within a couple of days of their surgery, one had an early stage 1A fallopian tube cancer and the other one had the precancerous change in her fallopian tube. So again, as a result of finding the BRCA2 mutation in, in their sister, we were able to pick up their cancers at an early stage and the the one with the 1A cancer chose to have chemotherapy afterwards um, the other one did not require any treatment and they are well um, sort of nearly 10 years later but as a result we also tested their children and we found one of the daughters carried the BRCA2 mutation and she'd just had her second child um, and once she stopped breastfeeding we started her breast screening and she had abnormalities in both breasts on her MRI scan and was found to have DCIS um, in both breasts so had that removed. Disseminated carcinoma inside you for Correct. So she had uh, surgery for both of those and again did not require any further treatment. But I think as a result of, of one test and one patient we've picked up three early, cancers or precancerous changes and again changed potentially the 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 outcome for all of those patients that's three lives saved yeah exactly family identified that can be screened and and dealt with you know a little bit off topic but you know i'm sure something you have to contend with i've just been listening to a podcast series about a, a young man who had hodgkin's disease and um got it into his head that the conventional treatment of this eminently treatable condition um, were, was some conspiracy between doctors and the pharmaceutical industry. And he went off and had alternative treatments in Mexico. I believe it was all sorts of nonsensical pseudoscience and succumbed to his disease. Huge surprise. Um, and he turfed up um, back in, in the UK seeking treatment when it was way too late. And his friends put together this podcast as a way of educating the public on the the dangers of pseudoscience and the dangers of conspiracy theories. Is that something you've had to deal with? As with many things, there's there's a lot of misinformation out there and a lot of people who are sort of occasionally apprehensive about what their genetic information is going to be used for. So I, I think that's something that we that we have to sort of address going forward. But thankfully, we don't see it as much as you might expect from what's in the media. I think many of the of the situations are are in the media, and, and thankfully, we don't see so many of those on a day-to-day -day basis. Many of my patients sort of say the first thing that everyone told me was not to go on the internet because that is where there is so much unregulated information. And the reality is that people can make all sorts of promises on the internet. You know, people can promise you treatments that have no side effects and are very effective and will cure you. And you just have to take this supplement or you have to take this highly restricted diet plan and you'll be fine. And it's it's really difficult when you have to sit there and, and t say to someone, well, my treatment does have side effects and this will happen and this will happen and this will happen. But we know that it's effective. Um but, you know, they, you hear that and then you hear someone else telling you, well, I'll cure you, but with no side effects. It's the old expression, no pain, no gain. If any drug doesn't have a side effect, everything has off-target effects. You know, you tell people if you take an aspirin for a headache, you run a risk of uh, gastrointestinal hemorrhage. So everything has side effects. It's It, it drives me crazy. And I, I the, the people who disseminate this kind of nonsense... And there's always, of course, a very big price tag. It's unconscionable.
a broad question for you. What's the future of oncogenetics other than that we need to educate doctors for sure and the public absolutely? What, what's the future of your specialty? I think increasingly we're understanding more and more about how this information is vital to being able to give people important prognostic information. One of the things that we have to get better at is is thinking about it early, so doing the right molecular testing at an early enough stage. But the biggest problem that we have at the moment and the biggest bottleneck really is about education and people who are confident using this information because, you know, every time you run one of these large panels from a patient, you get terabytes of data. It is still an, an early enough specialty that there aren't very many people who have the interest or the understanding to sit and go through that level of information and understand the difference as to whether this has come from a blood test or a tumor or a circulating DNA test or any of the other myriad ways in which we can increasingly get this information and, and know what's what's potentially missed through each of the different tests and, and what we need to consider. So education is, is vital, but also I think there is a real role for teaching oncologists and, and other clinicians as well. We've talked a lot about cancer genetics this morning because that's my specialty, but there is a similar movement in cardiology and neurology, and there has long been in pediatrics where we really need to, to make this an important part of the training for all of those physicians, because this is something that they're going to have to deal with on a day-to-day -day basis going forward. And the more that it's integrated into routine medical care, the better care we'll be giving our patients. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Angela, finally, if you had three wishes to be granted by a magical genie to advance global healthcare, what would they be? Goodness. Um, I think access is is the biggest problem we we face at the moment. So I think it would be the ability to give everyone the same access to to good treatment and the same access to to the right tests and treatment in a timely fashion so I think access is, is the one thing we would we'd need to focus on we need proper education and that's for patients as well as clinicians and we really need to do more about prevention because we've always focused on fixing the problem at the end of the day but so many of the problems that we see could be prevented with public health with better knowledge with better education programs and with understanding of things like genetic syndromes, but also all of the other risk factors for developing things like cancer and really proper um, work on, on focusing on those targets. So I guess those would, those would be my three wishes. Angela, I'm, I'm in awe um, of all you're doing uh, for, for patients and for the science. And thank you so much for joining us today, uh, Dr. Angela George. I'm also... I hesitate to ask, but I, I've got to taste these chocolates at some point. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so, so much for being with us. What you, The work you do is so important. It's so encouraging to hear the positive stories you've been able to tell us. It's been wonderful speaking with you. Thank you very much. So, folks, if you've enjoyed this episode, uh, please sign up so you don't miss future podcasts here at EMJ. And there are plenty in the archives. But until next week, I'm Dr. Jonathan Sakia. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Stay safe, stay well, stay curious. Bye for now.